Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here at First Christian Church, both here in the West Auditorium and also those of you uh, in the East Auditorium. Very glad that we're going to spend some time together today looking at Scripture. I'd invite you to take your Bible, please, and turn to Matthew chapter 22. It's about, if you're unfamiliar with Scripture, it's about three-quarters of the way through. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one in the pew rack in front of you in the East Auditorium. There are some folk moving around with them right now. And uh, friends, if you don't own a Bible... I'd be honored if you'd take that home as our gift to you. Seriously, we'd love you to have that. While you're, um, can we, for those who don't know me, my name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team, and I'm very glad to meet you, and hopefully we'll have a chance to chat face-to-face as the services end today. Uh, I think you're probably aware we've had some major uh, events take place in the life of our nation over the last few days, and... uh, uh, I want to respond to that in a way that I am expecting and believing to be biblical and appropriate. And a, a, a story came across my desk back in September that I've kept until this weekend uh, in anticipation of um, our nation's election on Tuesday and w- where we would stand as a nation. Here's how the story goes, so you understand it. Rolls-Royce, the um, giant manufacturing firm of Great Britain, of course, you may be aware that they do more than produce cars. They make engines of all sizes, and they're involved in aircraft manufacturing and ships and so forth and so on. So they uh, have announced that by 2020, just some three or more years from now, they are going to have a ship that's going to be a cargo ship in the water that will not have any human, humans on board it. In other words, this is like a Tesla car on steroids. Uh, you know, Tesla's these cars that now you, I was in one recently and you can go down the road and it will drive itself. I, it wasn't mine, I just want to point that out. But it's nice to have that, but that's a different matter. But nonetheless, it was going down the highway and nobody was driving. It was, you take your hands off and it knows when to go, knows when to stop, where the lanes, it's fascinating. Well, Rolls-Royce is taking that technology and putting it in ships, big cargo ships that are going to be um, maintained by land-based crews, and these uh, ships are going to go through the water, probably initially four to ten miles off the coasts of nations, like in shorter distances, like there's a lot of shipping traffic between, say, Baltimore uh, and, and Savannah, Georgia, and so the ships would go back and forth, and Nobody would be on board. It's a phantom ship. And I find the whole thing fascinating to think that people would be on the, on, the, on the land paying attention to what's going on there and these ships going back and forth, passing literally like ships in the night. Nobody there to see what's going on. They'd have cameras and drones and all kinds of GPS surveillance. And when that story came across my desk back in September, I thought, I'm keeping that because that's the way 
That's the way some people are going to feel after the election cycle comes to an end in November. That regard, it was my observation back then that we had about a 50-50 you know, split between people in the nation. And there were going to be 50% of the people who won, 50% of the people who lost. 50% were going to be happy, 50% were going to be unhappy. And I would suggest to you today that uh, if, if, if Trump had lost, his followers today would feel like they were at sea without anyone guiding them. And as it turns out, he won, but Clinton lost. And now I would suggest that Clinton's followers, they feel like they're at sea and they don't know if they, they don't like the person who is guiding the ship, if you will. And so they're saying, we might as well not have anybody guiding the ship at all. And that's how they feel today. And in the midst of that, how are Christians supposed to respond? How are we to, um, how are we to address the, the national mood where there's a lot of anger, a lot of, Mistrust. How do we address that regardless of our own individual voting preferences? Because in a church our size, people voted all different ways, I'm certain. And the focus of this sermon series that we're, we're in right now, started last week and is going for two more weekends, is how do we respond to this present national setting? How do we, how do we live as Jesus wanted us to live? In, in, Matthew chap, pardon me, in John chapter 17, in the hours right before he died, Jesus was praying to God the Father. And in praying to God the Father, he mentioned people like you and me. If we would claim to follow Jesus today, he said to God, they, my followers, are not of the world any more than I am of the world. They are not of the world even as I am not of it. And so, as you sent me into the world, I've sent them into the world. We looked at that specifically for a long time last week. But in a nutshell, it's basically this idea that Jesus is sent by God into the world as God's missionary to the world, but he never was fully of the world in the sense that he was, while he was fully human, there were also portions of him that would say, man, he, could, he was out of here. And it would be the same for followers of Jesus today. We live in the world, but we are not of it. And thus you have uh, this series title uh, for these weekends called In, Not Of. And by the way, I want to remind you that as part of this series, we're sending out text messages or emails every Monday morning. And so if you've got a smartphone with you today, all you have to do is text the words First Decatur to 24587. And every Monday you'll get, uh, tomorrow and the next Monday, you'll get a response to guide you how to think through what's going on. And if you haven't done that yet, we have close to 900 people who get that every Monday. And I would suggest that you might want to do that. Text the words First, to the, first Decatur to 24587. And uh, if you're not up on all the way in which technology can be used these days, there are paper copies available at the welcome desk, so you're welcome to pick that up as well there, okay? But the, the point of, of um, this series is to look at the national divide, this business that the nation is not aligned together in any way. And there's certainly been some horrible things that have come around as a result of the divide that's taking place in the nation. All kinds of name calling and hate. Twitter has said that the, the Twitter, people who watch Twitter saying that the number of hate sort of speeches on Twitter have risen just beyond what they ever expected. For example, there's a, there's a writer out on the West Coast. Her name is Hadass Gold. She's, she's a Jewish lady, uh, a young woman, who ha whose family has a tremendous story that I think that you would understand why she might feel a little threatened given what's happened to her. Her mother uh, comes, came out of Poland as a young girl uh, 
right, she left her neighborhood in Poland, managed to escape to the United States. She left just a matter of days before her whole neighborhood was deported to one of Hitler's concentration camps and they all disappeared. So this woman, uh, this Hadassah's mother, Mrs. Gold, if you will, has a sense of what it means to be hated and how hate can really do damage to you and damage to your family. And so she's lost a lot of her friends and family through hate. Well, Hadass is a woman who, um, uh, this younger woman, she writes perhaps in ways that I wouldn't always fully appreciate or, or fully agree with, but nonetheless, um, she, for some reason or other, some people have really taken towards hating what she's had to write, and it's not all that inflammatory. And they've begun to, um, well, concentrate on her Twitter account, where the point she's had to take it down, on her Instagram, she's had to take that down, because you know what she received recently? She received a, uh, um, an image of her that somebody had ripped off, they'd photoshopped it, and they'd put a gold um, Star of David on her chest and a bullet hole on her head. Now, don't you think we as a nation should know, shouldn't we remember uh, the world's recent history when it comes to how the, quickly the world can become anti-Semitic and how quickly the world can turn toward hate? There's also been another image of her that's been photoshopped in which her face has been photoshopped onto a corpse as it's being pulled out of a concentration camp oven. Now, regardless of whether or not I agree with her or disagree with her, that's not the point. I, I would say this, that's not the kind of America I want. Is that the kind of America you look for? That's not my America. It's certainly not Jesus' approach to political discussions. I want us to look at his discussions of politics today. If you'll look with me in Matthew chapter 22, beginning in verse 15. He gets engaged in a political discussion, unwarranted, but nonetheless it happens. The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in his words. They sent the disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now, I want to stop right there because before we even get to the story, if you're a little bit unfamiliar with what's going on there, if you don't know all that history between the Pharisees and the Herodians, you don't understand everything that's taking place there. Let me see if I can um, point out how this is a very unusual political alliance between two opposing groups that come to trap Jesus. You, you might recall, as background, that Matthew, when he was writing his biography about Jesus, that is set, Jesus' life was set. He came to earth in the, midst of the, in the middle of the Roman Empire. First century Israel was a, a nation that was living under the occupying forces of the Roman army. And, and Rome ruled with an iron fist. Taxes went to Rome. Israel lived under this foreign army's occupation. And it was harsh. It was a hard, hard life. And the Pharisees, the first group mentioned there, verse 15, do you see them? They were Jewish religious leaders who wanted to, to get rid of the Romans. They hated the Romans, and you would, as you would expect. I mean, the Romans had overrun their land, their nation. They were no longer in charge. The Romans were in charge. But they wanted the Romans out of there. That was one of their main political, if you will, their platforms. But the Herodians were significantly different. Do you know the name Herod? Does that name ring a bell? The Herodians were the people of Jewish, they were Jewish people who followed Herod. Now Herod didn't, as a matter of fact, Herod was a puppet of the, Herod was a puppet of the Roman Empire. You, you can think of it this way. He set up a government there that the, that the Romans set up for him. But it goes this way. It, it, maybe you know the story of France in World War II. 
how when Germany came in and um, overran France, the French government in Paris, they escaped, those individuals escaped and, and were exiled in England for the duration of the war. And while they were the real true government of France, when the Germans had the occupation of Paris and France in play. They set up a, a puppet government. It's the, the language that the French used was Vichy, the Vichy government. Maybe you've heard that term before, V-I-C-H-Y. And the Germans would say to the, to the Vichy government, you're going to do this, 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 and this, and the Vichy government would respond. And when the war ended, they were all carted off, and the real government of France came back from exile. Well, the Herodians were like that. They were, in many ways, that they were considered, well, they were willing to appease the Romans. So you've got the Pharisees who want the Romans out, you've got the Herodians who are willing to appease the Romans, the Herodians who were willing to appease the Romans, two different groups, if you will, one opposed to Rome, the other appeasing Rome. And Matthew says these diametrically opposed, two different political platforms come, they talk to Jesus, and they want to trap him. Read with me again. The Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus with his words. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. This is like the extreme left and the extreme right of our nation coming together to say we're going to do somebody in. All right? Teacher, they said, we know that you are a man of integrity and that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. They're flattering him. They're trying to get him off his guard, get him back on his heels and not pay attention to how this discussion could go very badly. Tell us then, what's your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. They brought him a denarius and he asked him, whose image is this? And looking at the coin, whose head was on the coin? Whose inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied, and he said to them, so give back to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's. So they've combined forces. They're trying to trap Jesus with a political question. And if he had answered either way, highlighting the other, it would have been very, very dangerous. Because, for example, if he'd said, well, I'm going to agree with the Pharisees, they would never say it publicly, but I'm going to say don't pay taxes, then he could have been charged with inciting insurrection against the Romans. The Romans said, we're going, to, we're going to rule, you're going to pay taxes. And remember, in first century Israel, in first century Roman Empire, there is no first amendment that says, I get to say what I want to say. We need to remember that where we have the first amendment, that is a, a very unique and we live in a very short time of history when anybody can say whatever they want compared to the rest of human history. So the, that privilege that we have was not available in first century. And if Jesus had said, don't pay taxes, that was inciting insurrection. It was a capital crime. He could lose his head for that. On the other hand, if he'd said, pay taxes to Rome... The Pharisees could catch him because the religious leaders could then charge him with heresy because if he says pay taxes to Rome and leaves it there, then they could say to him, well, you're pushing people's allegiance to Rome instead of to God. And that is heresy from the Jewish point of view. And so from at that time, and so you would have to say that he, he is stuck between a rock and a hard place. And remember, it was later on, it was, it was Jesus' heresy, if you will, from the Jewish point of view that got him killed. 
When he was willing to say, I'm divine, and that I'm the son of God, and that I am the Messiah, that's what caused the Jewish leaders to say, he needs to be executed. So this is a trap that they've set for Jesus. If Jesus had answered in either way, his life, his ministry, would have ended prematurely. Seems similar to what our nation faces today. Two completely opposing political viewpoints. And apparently, in our in our present setting, if you choose one side or the other, you're branded. You're branded either as a racist, bigot, misogynist, or you're branded as a socialist communist who's way too gullible on the other hand. But can I point out, in, the, in this story right here, Jesus doesn't call anyone names. He doesn't label people. He just said, some things the government matters, some things belong to God. These things that belong to God, they are his exclusive domain. He didn't fall for the trap. It's very wise. And if that's the case, how should Christians respond to the national mood and setting? How can we, in wisdom, honor the government when it's appropriate, but how do we do that only after devoting our lives to God and Jesus Christ first? I want to give you some ways in which to do that this morning. Because we, as, if, we're, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ here today, we need to know how, how do we just manage all the, the cauldron of, it seems to me, hate and evil that's around us. Well, to respond to the national mood of wisdom, we first of all have to say, I'm, gonna, I'm, I'm not going to fall for the trap. I'm going to watch for the trap. See, may I remind you, friends, that neither the Democrats nor the Republicans have it all right have it all correct. Neither Clinton supporters nor Trump supporters can be fully trusted to display Christian character, viewpoints, and behavior. I'm saddened for those who are emotionally devastated at Clinton's loss. They put too much hope in one woman, and I have to say as a follower of Jesus Christ, our hope, our hope is only found in Jesus Christ not in individual parties or individual politicians. I'm also saddened for Trump supporters who blindly follow without measures of caution regarding his ego and his uncontrolled rhetoric that seems to inflame the crazies of our nation. As a matter of fact, I wonder if we were to put a hashtag out there, hashtag crazies inflamed, if it would get any trending. I think it might, because that certainly seems to what happens. We need to be men and women, if we're following Jesus Christ, to watch for a trap of expecting one political party or one particular politician to fix our nation's problems. America will not be made great again simply by sheer determination. Our nation will only be great if God is honored. We don't need strong leadership. We need godly leadership because if we have godly leadership, then we will have strong leadership. May I remind Christians, if you're a Christian here today, our job is not to... Well, our job is to do what Jesus did, as I mentioned last week. He ran toward the mess. If there are men and women in our country who are marginalized, you know who should be the ones holding them and grabbing, grabbing them around the arm, around, hugging them around their shoulders and holding their hands and being the light for them. It should be Christians who are working for the marginalized, regardless of what this political leader does or does not do. Watch for the trap of thinking it's all up to one person. No, it's up to you and me. Secondly, make certain that we fight the right fight through prayer. Christians, our nation's future is not about a political fight that's right in front of us. 
If we've brought our future down to just what's right here, then we've lost what Scripture says, that our battle is in the heavenlies. Ephesians chapter 6 says that we fight war with forces that we can't always see. It's a spiritual battle. It's not a fight of rhetoric. It's a conflict best engaged in and only won by prayer. We could easily fight the wrong fight. I have, a, I have a, one of my favorite stories from history is about that very thing. I've told it before. I went back through my notes, and I think I told this to the congregation somewhere in 2002, and it, it's, well, it's about, a, if, you, if I may tell the story again, it's about a Japanese soldier in World War II. His name was Lieutenant Hiru Onado. He died in, 19, in 2014, and when Japan um, saw that he had died, they mourned him as a hero, and you go, well, what, what, was, what did he do, a lieutenant that was so important that the whole nation mourned his death. Well, here's his story. You may recall that in the late 1944, it was obvious that the Allies were moving towards winning the the war in the Pacific and and in Europe. And the Japanese had invaded the Philippines, and by December of 44, they were beginning to pull out from the Philippines. They eventually uh, had their forces on a little island off the coast of the Philippines known as Lebang Island. And on Christmas Day of 1944, the decision was made that they were going to retreat. They were going to leave the island. And so they said to Lieutenant Hiro Onado, 22 years of age, uh, we want you and your men to stay behind here on the island and act as our spies. You carry on the mission even though we are leaving. And you're to carry on that, this mission. You're to fight the war until your commanding officer comes back and tells you to stop fighting. Hero, at 22 years of age, was the commanding officer. He had three other soldiers under him, four of them all by themselves. And they were left on the island. That was the beginning of their mission, December 25th, 1944. Lead three guys without any contact from headquarters, without any other action, you, may, you carry on the war. Their battle, though, didn't end in May of that year when the war ended. They didn't know the war had ended. They'd been told to continue the battle, to continue the war, until their commanding officer showed up and said it's over. And so, he didn't come back for 29 years. For 29 years, those men carried on the war. Over the years, they lived off the stuff they could find on the island. They raided other f- the fields and the gardens of the local citizens. They actually killed, during those 29 years, they killed 30 Filipinos in their ongoing war, their personal war that they were responsible for. Almost half a million dollars was spent during the 1950s to try and ex- extricate them and let them know that the war had ended. 13,000 soldiers were sent onto the island to try and find them to no avail. One of the soldiers, one of Hero's uh, soldiers, was captured in 1950, and he surrendered. Another was killed in a skirmish with police in 1954, and another one in 1972. Think about this, 1944 to 1972, there have been just four of them, and now by the time you get to 1972, he is alone in the jungle by himself. All efforts were made to convince him to surrender, to tell him that the war had come to an end. They'd set up loudspeakers in the jungle and tell him, the war is over, the war is over. They dropped leaflets from the sky. No, he wasn't going to quit the war. You know why? He'd been told by his commanding officer, the war will not end for you until I come back and tell you it's over. 29 years later, a young Japanese college student was walking through the jungle of 
Lebang Island and came across a man in his 50s who was still fighting a war almost 30 years later. And the young man was able to say, oh no, the war ended in 1945. And here it says, but I have not been relieved of my responsibilities. His commanding officer by that time was a grocery, he owned a grocery store in, <laughs> in Japan. They went back, they put a uniform on him again, and they said, you've got to go back to Labang Island, you've got to, you've got to relieve Hiro Nado of his responsibilities. And so on March 10th, 1974, 29 and a half years after he started, he met his commanding officer, and the officer said, the war is over, and with that, Hironado offered his ceremonial sword that he'd been using all those years, rusty as it was. Now, I gotta tell you, friends, I have tremendous respect for him. 29 years, I've been told to do this, I'm gonna do it. My men are all dead or gone, I'm still gonna keep doing it. He was died, a war hero, as you can imagine. But on the other hand, in retrospect, his actions were tragic. His actions were life-wasting. And at times, I watch Christians do the same thing. We fight the wrong fights. We fight the wrong war. I see Christians who have great passion. They take on inflamed language. They hold rallies and spend inordinate amounts of money. And they do it for years. But may I suggest, friends, that our war is not on political matters. Our war is that people are headed to hell apart from Jesus Christ. And our fight is a fight about eternity, not about what somebody says about your, your political candidate on Facebook. It's not about what we say on Facebook or we read on Facebook. It's about the fact that can we see people come to know Jesus Christ? Can we see the marginalized have better lives? Can we be God's instruments of grace and peace in this world? How do we do that? We have to choose our battles much more wisely through prayer. And to that end, may I remind you what the Apostle Paul did and what the Apostle Paul said in the midst of a very fractured and contentious society and culture and world when he, as an older man, was writing to a young pastor whose, you could assume, whose congregation had all kinds of different viewpoints. Read with me aloud what he was instructed to do. I urge then that petitions, prayers, intercession, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Savior. Wouldn't you like to have a life of peaceful and quiet moments? No, I'm, I'm up for a party. I don't mind being loud at the right moment, but there are also moments when I would wish I would just have a peaceful and quiet life. And do you notice how that comes about? Prayers, petition, and intercession, and thanksgiving for all people and for those in authority. To that end, we're gonna do this right now. We're gonna take a moment to pray for our nation. And uh, this is kind of, if you will, a, a twofold prayer that I want you to walk through with me today. Uh, over the weekend, or on Friday, we celebrated v Veterans Day and we were reminded of the number of people who helped and brought our nation to where it is today. Men and women, some of whom gave their lives, many people who gave of their time and effort and energy, some of their best years to serve our land. And I think it's appropriate that we remember them. And the typical way that's done would be in settings outside of church is people, somebody would stand on a stage and say, would you all stand and have a moment of silence? Well, I'm gonna change it up just a bit. Rather than me praying out loud though, I, in a moment I'm gonna say, would you stand, would you have a moment of silent prayer, thanking God for the people who've given us what we have, and then asking God 
to pray for those in authority and ask that God's grace and peace would be found. That means we pray right now for President Obama and we pray for President-elect Donald Trump, both of them. They are two opposing, hold two different opposing viewpoints. I get that. The scripture doesn't say just pray for the one you like. It says pray. So at this moment, would you stand together, please? And I invite you to have a moment of quiet, silent prayer where you ask God to watch over those two men and their separate administrations, all the way down the ticket, if you will, as well as thank God for this land in which we live given to us by the veterans. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Before we close today, thank you for your prayers, by the way. And before we close, can I give you one more thought regarding our response to the national mood? And that is this. Align with God before you align with any particular political party or candidate. Because I want to tell you this, friends. If you align with one particular party or one particular political candidate somewhere along the line, that group or that person is going to disappoint you. Jesus said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give the right do there. We just prayed for our leaders. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. And I want you to hear this very clearly this morning and how I respond to that. I don't want to nuance my words. I don't want to parse my words, but I want you to be able to do that in your own head, and I'm trusting you to hear this straight up for what I'm saying, because this may be shocking to some people at first, and that is, you need to know I'm very glad that I live here in the United States. When I um, think about the First Amendment rights that we have, that I can stand here and talk to you about these matters, and you could do the same thing, that's powerful, powerful stuff. When I listened to President Obama on Wednesday talk about how the transfer of power went from the Bushes, I mean, from Bush to him, and how he's going to, in grace, do the same for Trump, I got to tell you, I sat in my office and I, I, I teared up, which I'll say, in fairness, is not something that often happens when I listen to Obama, but for me, just saying it as it is, okay? But I, you know what? You know what I was reminded. This is a great land where we can say we will, we were, we're not going to kill people. We're not. We're not. We're going to have a a, a a graceful transfer of power. How incredible is that? If you look at the history of the world, we live in a really cool place. I'm very glad for that. But you need to know, friends, my, as a Christian. My allegiance is to Jesus Christ before it is to any nation or any particular flag. I, I want to align myself with God long before I endorse any human institution or political organization. I have to be a Christian first, not an American first. And here's why. 
If you have to be American in order to be a Christian, then we've got a problem for all those who live outside this country who call themselves Christians. The kingdom of God, we're gonna look at this next week particularly, the kingdom of God is not exclusively for Americans. We have to say that Christians get above the fray that our responsibility is to a, is to a flag that's even higher than the American flag. I need to align myself with God before anyone else. Let me explain it this way. I want you to see an artist's rendition of buildings that are being built right now in Kazakhstan. Uh, Kazakhstan is going to host the 2017 World's Expo. And uh, it's a 430-acre campus that's being built as a, a campus made of buildings for the future. Using solar panels and wind turbines within that 430 acres, um, the um, authorities believe the buildings themselves are going to generate about a quarter of the energy that they're going to need for the lifetime of the building. They are built and the roofs are aligned so that they uh, line up with the sun. Now, Kazakhstan is a cold place. It gets lots of snow. So what, ha what happens when it snows and the solar panels get covered and the roofs get covered? Well, actually, they've got the roofs are all covered and the buildings, the facades of the buildings are all curved so the snow will fall off. Now, how what I like about this is that they collect the light and energy while repelling the cold stuff. They are aligned the right way for the future. And if you want to know how we as Christians should respond to the national mood, we need to align ourselves with topics, approaches, lifestyles, opinions, and personalities and people who honor God. Collect God's power there. Collect God's light there. Repel, the, repel, ladies and gentlemen, repel the cold ugliness of hate that seems to have taken over our world and over our land by aligning, our, aligning yourself with God in Jesus Christ. Start there. We can have all sorts of political discussions after that, but we have to start with saying, Jesus Christ is the leader of my life. Start there, and we'll figure out the rest after that. And we may not always agree after that, but we have to agree that we will align ourselves, first of all, with Jesus Christ, and we'll let what belongs to the government belong to the government, and we will, what belongs to God belongs to God. My life and my allegiance starts there. So to that end, I invite you again today, we're praying and we're reading out loud a lot today, to pray the same prayer we used at the end of my message last week. Um, it comes out of Psalm 90. Psalm 90 says that, God, you've been our help in ages past. And certainly that could be the, the statement of our nation. God, you've helped us in the past. And so based on that history and that experience, we're leaning into you, God, leaning into the tradition, leaning into the legacy, and we're going to believe that you're going to help us in the future. This is our prayer. Let's pray it together, please. Lord, you've been our dwelling place throughout all generations. Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Satisfy us in the morning with your unfailing love, that we may sing for joy and be glad all our days. May your deeds be shown to your servants, your splendor to their children. May the favor of the Lord our God rest on us. Establish the work of our hands for us. Yes, establish the work of our hands. Let's pray together. God, in that vein, in that, in that direction of thought, we would today declare that you have led our nation with great splendor in the past. There have been other moments, Lord, when the nation has been just as fractured or even more fractured. We think, Lord, of the Civil War. We're, we're so thankful we're not there. 
And yet, God, we would look and we'd say, in the midst of the fractures, usually your right way comes about. We see it over and over and over again. And so in the midst, Lord, of the factions and the language of this particular hour in our nation's history, we lean into you. We pray for President Obama that he would continue to guide our nation in ways, God, that honor you. We pray for President-elect Trump, that he would, in the days ahead, guide our nation in a way that honors you. As your followers here today, God, we would declare our allegiances to you first. We're still working that out, God. We're not saying that we've got it all figured out. And we know, Lord, there's plenty of discussion about all the implications of that. But we would say, oh God in heaven, as you've been our help in the past, be our help in the future. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen.